Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, everybody. I think many of us come to meditation for some sort of comfort. But right now, especially for white people, it may be a good time to embrace our discomfort. In this episode, you're about to hear Lama Rod Owens encourages me to go well outside of my comfort zone, and I'm very grateful to him for doing it. Lama Rod is the author of the soon-to-be-released book, Love and Rage. As it says in the bio on his website, his life sits at the, and I'm quoting here, cross-sections of so many aspects of American life as a black, queer male born and raised in the South. He was officially recognized by the Kagyu School of Tibetan Buddhism after he completed a three-year silent meditation retreat, during which time he says he dealt with years of past pain and trauma. As you're going to hear him say in this interview, he worked his butt off to feel okay. After that retreat, he completed a Master of Divinity at Harvard. And I hope you uh, get as much out of this conversation as I did. So here we go with Lamarad. Nice to see you, even under the circumstances. It's nice to see you. So thanks for doing this. Absolutely. Yeah, I I just want to point out just from the jump here that one of your requests going into this, well, the only request you really had was uh, that you you preferred this to be more of a dialogue than a a straight-up interview. It might be interesting to hear you explain why that's preferable to you. Yeah. Well, I think it's important right now that we model conversation around difficult issues, you know? And from my perspective, I'm coming from this experience of being a person of African descent, Black American, and you coming from someone who's white identified, you know? And I think this is the space that we're struggling to to come into, you know, is to be in this space where we're trying to relate to each other really through, you know, I mean, centuries of conditioning, you know, within this country, you know, and this conditioning has determined how we're relating to one another, you know, and there's a lot of discomfort, you know, and for me, my discomfort arises from the ways in which I feel as if I'm often having to justify the way that I feel, as being, you know, victimized by, you know, systematic racism, you know. And I can't speak for you as to what your discomfort is, but I wonder what your experience is moving into this space right now. Well, it's not all, there, there is a lot of fear, and I'll mm-hmm. talk about that, but there's mm-hmm. also a lot, there are also constructive, or not constructive, I'm not going to say that fear is, because sometimes fear can be waking you up to something important. But mm-hmm. um, there's also some positive uh, emotions, you mm-hmm. know, or or mental states like curiosity and interest yeah. and uh, a desire to use this platform to, to help out at a really wrenching point in mm-hmm. American and human history. Mm-hmm. But but on the on the fear, mm-hmm. I think it's you know, I talked about this a little bit the other day in the mm-hmm. podcast I did with Seven A Selassie yeah. that that there's just a fear of 
saying the wrong thing right. and, and and being humiliated. And I, you know, I, I remember talking mm-hmm. to a black friend of mine mm-hmm. who was saying that every time she posts on Facebook about anything, her white friends like it. But anytime she posts about race issues, it's crickets. Yeah. And finally, she started asking them a lot of the, uh, Why are you not saying anything when I post about racial issues? And, mm-hmm. and they're like, well, because we're just afraid of saying the wrong thing. Yeah. And I think that fear... I don't have survey data, but I have a suspicion that the fear that I feel is not uncommon to white people, especially right now. Yeah, yeah, I can relate to that experience from your friends, you know, absolutely. And I wonder and I and I hear the feedback often of, well, I'm afraid to say the wrong thing. And I can relate to that, particularly when I'm talking about issues that I'm not particularly deeply impacted by. You know, so I, I can sense that. But when I when we talk about race and I hear this feedback from white folks about, well, I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I just I wonder what that really means. Like, what is that? What I, I wonder what's actually being communicated. You know, what does it mean to have a fear to say the wrong thing? What is the wrong thing? You know, I think there's again, now I don't want to be a spokesman for right. the white race. Here. Right. Um, but yeah, if I look honestly at my own mind, there are things in there that are really, yeah, that are I'm not proud of. Mm-hmm. But I think there's just there's some resentment too. You're mm-hmm. making me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I saw I was just reading an essay from you about <laughs> um, about about you, you wrote an essay before all all of this about, and there was a line in there that really resonated with yeah. me. You wrote this essay about how protest is your mm-hmm. is a spiritual practice right. for you and. Yeah. Uh, and you talked about how you don't see other Buddhists at these protests. Mm-hmm. And, and if I'm paraphrasing you correctly, mm-hmm. you, you, you talked about how, you know, Buddhism has become an upper middle class white pursuit in America right. and that people go to the practice for comfort yeah. and engaging in protests mm-hmm. and engaging in conversations like this yeah. is uncomfortable. Yeah. And so there is some yeah i i don't i don't want to feel uncomfortable i came to this meditation thing to you know <laughs> soothe all of that and here you are you know making me extremely uncomfortable so i i i hope that's a fulsome answer to your question well i i think that's that's really important to point out you know i think what you're doing is something really important for the folks that follow you you know, because I think that we're looking for white identified folks to kind of step forward to start like actually articulating these deep fears, you know, um, and the fear, you know, and the fear also is really about the ways in which I can mirror back, particularly to white folks, you know, all these things in which whiteness has conditioned you to bypass, you know, and and I believe, you know, if, if you read my work, you know that I talk about the heartbreak. I talk about the suffering that we all are experiencing, right? You know, and this work is deeply, you know, influenced by the work of James Baldwin, who talked about this over and over again. What is this deep pain that white folks are avoiding, which actually contributes to the level of violence that they, you know, inflict on people of color, Black people in in particular, you know? And I can hold that expression 
in these conversations. Like, I am resourced and prepared to hold that, you know? And I think part of the fear around the conversation is also that, you know, there are white folks who are just like, I don't want to make your burdens, you know, more intense, you know, by making you listen to, you know, the ways in which I struggle with whiteness or the the ways in which I struggle with racism. And that's okay, you know? And so I can hold that. You know, not, I'm not speaking for all Black people here. <laughs> you know, I'm speaking from my experience as someone who's trained really deeply to hold suffering, both my suffering, other people's suffering. I can hold that, you know. Um, so that's really important to know. But we have to be able to check in with, you know, our Black friends and to say, you know what, I, I want to share this. Is it okay if I do this? You know, because some Black folks can really step up and hold the space, and some of us can't. You know, that's a really good step forward is asking consent, you know. Mm. And then that consent makes it easier for white folks to step into this material that they're just not sure about. You know, you know that the ways in which their beliefs, their ideas will be exposed. And we need to do more of that exposing that vulnerability work with each other. I think I think white folks need to do it with themselves. And I think when white folks come to people of color and black people, there should be a way in which we ask you ask consent for that openness to happen. Well, I have so many responses to so many things you just said. I don't know how to get it all out. Okay. Let me yeah. see if I can put this in some order here. On um consent, I think mm-hmm. that's a great piece of advice. But mm-hmm. I wonder if there is an Another thing that Mm -hmm. white people can do Mm -hmm. when approaching black people, especially at this time, Mm -hmm. which is. I made this mistake the other day Mm -hmm. with on a text chain with two black friends Mm -hmm. where I sort of just launched into the discussion. Not only did I not ask for consent, but I also, as was pointed out to me, Mm -hmm. didn't even say, how are you? Yeah. And so that strikes me as a a pretty good first step. Yeah. You don't need consent to ask somebody, how are you? Exactly. That actually is like the first step towards consent, actually. It's like, let's check in. <laughs> like, how are you? What's up for you? A, a really powerful, you know, kind of statement is, or a question is, how's your heart? You know, how's your heart doing? You know, and that can open the gate for a lot, you know, of sharing. And it can make it easier for consent to happen. Or, or it can make it easier for you you know, to understand that maybe right now my friend can't really hold this thing that I'm about to share because their heart sounds really heavy, you know? Um, I mean, that's so incredibly important that, you know, I think this is what practice is helping us to do is to, to develop this sensitivity, you know, to get some space around what's coming up for us so we can have a thought that's empathic or empathetic, so the experiences of others. I heard that move toward an empathic leap in your reference earlier mm-hmm. to James Baldwin yeah. and trying to understand the pain that white people are trying to avoid yeah. that may then explain some of the violence that they then act out. Can you unpack some of that? Because I, I am intrigued by that, mm-hmm. but I didn't fall fully grok it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that this is a really interesting conversation that we're stepping into because I want to share my experience of what it's like to hold the violence and the brokenheartedness of surviving a racist system 
you know? And I think it's really interesting for you to also just kind of share what is your relationship to how Black people respond to systems of racism, you know, because this, like, you know, the marches, the protests, the riots that we're experiencing, it's very American. <laughs> you know, there's nothing more American than a riot, you know? But what's also very American is the ways in which certain groups get to riot and have access and space to riot, well, where other groups are, you know, quite disciplined and de- demonized for their rioting, you know? Um so I want, but I want to step back first into, you know, James Baldwin, you know, James Baldwin, I mean, and not James Baldwin, but just so many other writers, you know, um, over the past hundred years, I would say even more, really spoke about this reality of, of Black pain. You know, of course, in my work, I call it, call it heartbreak, you know, Black heartbreak, but we all experience heartbreak. But Black heartbreak is really rooted within this experience of a deep disappointment, you know, so I grew up with this heavy disappointment because I was born into a system that I did not consent to. You know, and I'm talking socially, I'm talking about systems of of, of power and hierarchy and discrimination like racism um, and so forth, patriarchy. Like I was born into systems that I had no say in, but I've been deeply conditioned by it. And that conditioning, particularly talking about racism, has restricted many resources that are related to how I can experience health, you know, and and well-being and happiness in this life and in this body. I'm really deeply disappointed by that. And that deep disappointment gives rise to a deep anger and rage, you know, that systems have been created to erase, to bypass, to ignore, you know, and that actually intensifies the anger, this 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 like feeling of being erased and ignored, you know. And so I'm I'm reminded of Dr. King, you know, in a speech um called The Other America that he offered in I think nineteen sixty-eight, where he talks about how riots are the language of the unheard, you know, and I, that really holds my experience right now, you know, looking out into the world, the, for me, when I see people out, and I, I and I come from activism as well, right? You know, so I, I, I've, I've been in a lot of organizing, you know, and community work, and 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 so when I look at the rise, I see people expressing their hurts, you know, within a system that actually cannot hold their hurt, their heartbreak, or their anger, you know. Um, so that's my experience, right? You know, but what is your experience of all of this? Your, what is your reaction to everything that I've just shared? Well, I'm still curious mm-hmm. about this notion that the racism that courses often unseen, but definitely seen mm-hmm. too through our culture is causing white people pain that we don't want to reckon with that Mm -hmm. makes everything worse. I I want to interrogate that. But in terms of what we're seeing on TV, just to clarify your question Mm -hmm. about how I'm reacting to it, are you are you asking how am I reacting to the scenes we're seeing on Mm -hmm. TV Mm -hmm. of civil unrest? Um, Well, let me let me 
just actually clarify that more because there's something happening in the in the conversation now, you know, which is the ways in which the sharing from Black folks becomes this intellectual thing that white folks want to analyze and get into, you know, and some of the words curious, interrogate, you know, those are those can be really harmful words when someone has shared <clears throat> something that's really deep and personal, you know, and triggering, you know. So I, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate is, you know, I, I love to hear how people are feeling hmm. when I'm, you know, after I've shared something, you know. And I love to check into how I'm feeling when someone else shares something that's really vulnerable, you know. So I guess the question now is, not what you think, but how do you feel right now? Like, how do you feel? Uh, when I get anxious, mm-hmm. there's a sort of buzz in my chest. Mm-hmm. So I definitely feel that. Mm-hmm. And then you're right. There is an urge to intellectualize. Mm-hmm. There are so many questions I have yeah. and mm-hmm. uh, and... Yeah, your point about curiosity and interrogation lands well with me. I, 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 I definitely hear that because that's going on for me, too. Yeah. 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 You know, and for me, when I check in with my body, I'm just sensing my heart rate, you know, has has increased because I've entered into this really vulnerable place, you know. And it's not that I don't trust you. You know, it's really not the case. I... So much of what I do is about being vulnerable, and I can hold that. But my, I think I feel the anxiety, I think, is, is because of, you know, the risks that I'm taking, you know, to ask you to check in with your feelings and the ways in which I've had to survive retaliation, hmm. you know, because— one of the the expressions of of whiteness and white supremacy is that I think white folks are trained to bypass the feelings, you know, to and to actually bypass the body, you know, and to stay in the head, to stay, you know, in in the, the what I call the analytical mind, you know, instead of touching down into the feeling body of these experiences. You know, and that keeps that keeps us riding above the waves of oppression, you know, but for people who hold power within systems of oppression, you know, you can ride above it if you can't feel it. If you can't if you can't feel my pain, then you're not you're not going to help me disrupt the systems that perpetuate the pain. So even for you right now, yeah. after having done the amount of work that I know you've done mm-hmm. on these issues, thinking, talking, engaging, mm-hmm. your heart rate is elevated mm-hmm. having this conversation mm-hmm. with me. Yeah. And it's not, you know, I just want to point out, it's not overwhelming, you know, but I, I can notice it. I just notice it. You know, it's not distracting. It's not causing me to shut down or to back away, but I'm just noticing. And that's all I'm doing is just noticing. You know, I think the problem is sometimes we notice and then we get distracted by it. And then the distraction eases us into shutting down and backing away from the conversation when instead we should be leaning more into it. Right. You know, and the thing that's also happening is that there's trust that's building between us right now because you've been willing to engage 
you know? Um, and I, I really appreciate that, the work that you're doing right now. You know, um, there are these subtle experiences of whiteness and white supremacy that refuse to be named. And so many of these experiences are rooted within the body, you know? And so to name it, to notice it really begins the work of divesting, you know, from whiteness and white supremacy. And that's incredibly hard work. You know, that's really uncomfortable. You know, so I just want to point that out that this is part of the work. Like we have to, we have to decenter comfort and then allow discomfort to be centered, you know, in the discussion. And that everyone's uncomfortable. That's the thing. (laughs) You know, I don't know of anyone who enters into this dynamic space of conversation around these issues that have so impacted our lives. I don't know anyone who doesn't experience really strong, intense discomforts. And I think we have to own it and embrace it. I'm going to ask this question mm-hmm. and uh, I'll be aware of the fact that maybe it's somewhere in the neighborhood of being too intellectual. But mm-hmm. I do notice as I pay attention to my mind, body, as you're talking, mm-hmm. you've done this a couple of times where you've said nice things about thank you for doing mm-hmm. this work. Thanks mm-hmm. for engaging. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm aware that there is this. I've heard it described a trend among white people mm-hmm. doing this work mm-hmm. and I see it in my own mind mm-hmm. as I as I've to the limited extent that I've engaged in mm-hmm. this work of cookie seeking. Mm-hmm. You know, white people looking to feel like mm-hmm. good white people right. for doing this work and looking for the praise and mm-hmm. I can see the dopamine in my hit go <laughs> off in my own mind when every time you say something like that and you know, yeah, I, I just wonder if you see that arise in, in the work you've done over the years yeah. in this in this area. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I completely agree, you know, and I have colleagues who refuse to, to like, to offer appreciation, to, to actually acknowledge the work, you know, um, that white people do in these conversations. And I get where people are coming from, but I think in this moment, what my experience is, I'm experiencing appreciation, you know, for this work and it doesn't it doesn't take energy from me i'm not you know i'm not disrupting any experience that i'm having in particular but i'm just noticing you know the level of work that you're trying to do and i just want to point that out but having said that i also say too is that like and this is also the minimal <laughs> <laughs> as well like there this is just the beginning mm-hmm. you know that like yeah this is good but there's so much more work to do you know because the ways in which we've been conditioned particularly under within systems of power and privilege it's it's elusive the conditioning is extremely elusive so you may you may tap it here but it's going to like skirt away <laughs> you know and hide away and other things you know, and we have to be vigilant, you know. And for me, the vigilance is rooted within just always dropping back into my body over and over and over again, letting my body tell me 
what's happening, what's going on, where is my fear, where is my discomfort, you know, where is like the the tendency for me to shut down. I can feel that in my body, you know, and I can stay open to it, you know, and and for white folks really wanting to have this conversation and wanting to understand, you have to be in connection with the body, the body is telling you, you know, what's going on, you know, if you don't hold space for the body, then you, your minds, the, the mental analytical experience will begin to shut the body down, you know, because it's unsafe, you know, you have to understand, like the body tells a truth, you know, and the mind comes in and says, no, we can't handle that truth. You know, in many ways, the mind is the enemy of liberation, you know, particularly an untrained mind. You know, so I say all that to say, please continue, that I appreciate it, but please continue to be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And I can hold that. All right. Don't take the cookie and go back to watching Netflix. Exactly. And the work done. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. You. Yeah. Um, I did, message received. Um let me ask you mm-hmm. the question that I failed to ask my friends on the text chain okay. the other day. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious about, I mean, you talked a little bit about how you are in this moment, mm-hmm. although that was 10 minutes ago or something like that. And so it may cha- it may have changed. Mm-hmm. Everything's changing all the time. But generally speaking, we're, in, to state the blazingly obvious, in the <laughs> middle of a really tumultuous time. And, yeah. and I asked you before we began rolling mm-hmm. how you are, but I want to hear more now how you know how are you taking all of this in Mm -hmm. you know in a really basic level my heart is broken and when i say brokenheartedness again you know as i you know talked about earlier it's about this deep disappointment and i'm disappointed again because we still have to do these things to be heard to be seen And I'm even more disappointed because we're at the same time still struggling through a pandemic and a pandemic that is um, disproportionately affecting the lives of people of color, particularly Black Americans. You know, so not only do we, are we fighting for our lives socially, we're fighting for our lives medically, you know, and that's a position that, in my experience, we've always been in. From the very moment you know, my ancestors were introduced into the American context as slaves, we've just always been fighting for our lives, you know? And that is a kind of trauma that just is passed from generation to generation. And so also what I'm seeing is the expression of trauma, you know, that has not been taken care of. When, which is hard to take care of when you're trying to fight for your life in a system that actually wants to annihilate you. Like racism is a system that's about annihilating people, erasing people. You know, white supremacy to a very real extent is also about the same things about annihilating people, right? So white supremacy doesn't care about anything, including white people. You know, white supremacy is about power. It's about disconnection. You know, um, it's about distance. It's about disembodiments, you know. And so we're all struggling, you know. But it's 
white folks who have to do the work of undoing whiteness because I've not been conditioned as a white person. I have experiences of whiteness. I have experiences of being in a relationship with white people, but I do not have the experience of being conditioned as white within the American context. You know, whiteness is, of course, it's different across the world in different countries, different ethnic and cultural and national, um, you know, um, context. But in America, whiteness is a very specific condition that only white people can disrupt through that, through their divestments, you know. You know, but this, you know, comes, brings me back to another question, you know, which is like, how, you know, how do you feel, right? How do you really feel about what you're seeing, you know? So many things. Yeah. Well, you know, just express them. You know, the space is open. Um, well, first and foremost, when I look at that video, I feel mm-hmm. horror. Mm-hmm and anger, and when I, to the best of my limited abilities mm-hmm. as a human being, make the empathic leap into the shoes of a black person watching that video, I think about the trauma that you described, the trauma mm-hmm. of 400 years, mm-hmm. uh, the trauma of, or 401 years, mm-hmm. I guess, and how that all gets activated. Yeah. Um, I feel uh, uncomfortable because I know that that we really have to have these conversations and I need to have the conversation. I have a responsibility to have mm-hmm. the conversation on a human-to-human level with the people in my life mm-hmm. who uh, don't share my whiteness mm-hmm. um, and also publicly. Mm-hmm. Because that's, you know, that's where I've landed. I, mm-hmm. I, this is this is has to be on me right now, given the platform I have. Mm-hmm. But that's really uncomfortable because I've had experiences in my past where I've had these conversations mm-hmm. and they haven't gone well. Well, that's not really true. I'll tell you, there's one there's one experience that I had when I was a kid. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you this experience, and I I am very reluctant to share it with you. Okay. In part because it's embarrassing. Mm-hmm. It's probably the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to me. But it's also in part because I am very aware, and I did talk about this the other day with 7A, I'm very uh, reluctant to put black people in the position of comforting white people right mm-hmm. now because you've got enough stuff going on mm-hmm. that you don't need to, you know, mm-hmm. what did Seb say the other day in our podcast that posted the other day? She said something like, don't, you know, like sometimes black people feel forced to play right. mammy. right. Right. But I'll tell you this because mm-hmm. you're asking me how I feel mm-hmm. and this is coursing through my body mm-hmm. and and mind as mm-hmm. every time I have this conversation mm-hmm. and I'm only I've only really come to terms with mm-hmm. it recently mm-hmm. and I don't know if come to terms with it is the right expression but maybe it, I've become aware of the continuously recurring role it plays in my psyche recently. Mm-hmm. When I was 10 or something like that I was I grew up in Newton, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. which is um, not far from where you are right now yeah. in Boston, in mm-hmm. the Dorchester section of Boston. And it is a leafy suburb, but it also is actually and or certainly was when I grew up quite diverse. Mm-hmm. But 
diverse in a pre-PC mm-hmm. and just post-busing crisis mm-hmm. Boston. Mm-hmm. So for those unfamiliar with the busing crisis, there was a move to desegregate Boston schools by busing black children into white neighborhoods and vice versa, I believe. And it caused civil unrest mm-hmm. slash a riot, mm-hmm. uh, ongoing upheaval. So I, I was not sentient at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was, I was, I guess I was technically sentient, but I wasn't watching the news. Um, but that was the environment. So in the 80s, in the, in the 70s and 80s, I'm going to elementary school. Yeah, 70s mostly. So this stuff was happening. But so it is diverse in my neighborhood. There's uh, kids bust in from the city. In my neighborhood, there were sort of middle class, upper middle class houses and also housing projects. Yeah. But it wasn't diverse in a touchy-feely way. It was mm-hmm. diverse in a, like, everybody made fun of everybody else. Mm-hmm. So I'm Jewish, and mm-hmm. uh, you you could get made fun of for that. Uh, you get made fun of for being black or Asian or Hispanic. And I was part of a crew. Uh, and ad- I, I have this memory of being part of a group of kids that was bullying other kids. Mm-hmm. And I say this as a kid who was uh, bullied and did bullying. So that that's a big dynamic in my mind, yeah. actually. Um, and we were bullying. I think we, we bullied many kids. But one day, a pack of us were bullying a kid who was half black, half white. And I don't remember everything that happened, but it wasn't good. And by bullying, I don't mean we physically, t- but we we're just taunting him. I, mm-hmm. I, the memories are all very foggy. What happened next was that we got in trouble, mm-hmm. but the way the story shook out mm-hmm. was that I was really the only one who got in trouble, mm-hmm. is my memory mm-hmm. of it. I don't remember the technical details. I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. But I remember feeling like I was the only one who got in trouble. I was the one who got ca- called to the principal's office, and it became a big deal, mm-hmm. a really big deal. Um I don't know if I was suspended or what, but it was a big deal in the school and in, you know, between the two families. Mm -hmm. And there was reconciling that happened. But I felt both rightly accused and wrongly accused. Mm -hmm. So that mix for me has been very difficult to deal with where I felt, Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I was part of this, but I also didn't want to admit that. And also there was a lot of stuff allegations level that I didn't think were were true. Anyway, I'm getting too into the details here. But I was very activated by this, Mm -hmm. and I felt deeply ashamed. Mm -hmm. And so every time I have a conversation like Mm -hmm. this, that danger alert Mm -hmm. gets sent up for me in a very big way. Long answer to your question, but there it is. Well, that's important. (laughs) I think that's like, I think we all carry things from our childhood. You know, we're conditioned through these experiences in childhood that actually begin to impact our developments into our our adult years. And these things come back and they like, they impact how we're able to relate to folks. You know, this thing happened to me when I was 12 or 13 or 14. And because that happened, I can't do this thing right now. You know, so that's really important, you know, to, you know, to kind of put out there, Um, you know, and, and, and. I appreciate you sharing that, you know, opening that up, you know, because I think we need to share stories like this, you know, and I share so much, I share so many of these stories in my writing, you know, in the books that I write, articles and talks, you know, because it's important that we know where people are coming from, you know, I think, I think there are like, there's this like two big things, you know, that I think it's important to point out 
I think one is there's this practice that I developed. And I don't know, I didn't, I don't think anyone told me or taught me this. It's just something that I just kind of came up with was that, you know, I started thinking about all the difficult situations I've had with people in life, you know, just, you know, the arguments, the disagreements, whatever, the drama. And I started thinking, particularly after I started practicing, you know, uh, meditation was that, God, I wonder if this person, you know, that I had this struggle with, I wonder if they were struggling with something else at the time. And I wonder if our conflict was really about us or was it really about something that they're working through in the moment? And that just kind of blew my mind open, you know? And it helped me to have this practice of saying, you know what, you know, maybe people are doing the best they know how to do in the moment. You know, even if it's difficult, maybe this is the best that they can do. And how can I actually bring some empathy to this? Where it's not so much about me, but it's also about the recognition that people are struggling with whatever limited resources that they're working with in the moment, you know? And I think we all carry these hidden stories around, but we, because we don't know these stories about each other, we just make things up. We just, we're like, oh, that person is an asshole. That person is, you know, they're just like hard to deal with, you know, instead of saying, oh, I wonder if this person survived abuse growing up. I wonder if this person had enough love in their life. I wonder if this person's ever experienced, you know, being marginalized or erased. And that pain that's accumulated from that erasure, maybe they're just like really struggling to be with that. And make and that makes it difficult for them to be in relationships with maybe me. <laughs> you know? That softens the heart so much. You know? But we don't tell these stories enough. We don't tell these stories of the time when I was a teenager and I got into this this trouble and this thing has stayed with me my whole life. And this is why it's so difficult for me to be open and vulnerable about these issues. This is why things don't go well for me because I'm reliving that trauma from something from another time, you know? Um, and that's why I want to really like point out to all the listeners too, is like we have to take time to tell stories, you know? Like storytelling is such an important part of, you know, liberation, you know? Um there's an organization called Narrative Four, you know, which is a nonprofit, and they teach, um, they go around teaching storytelling. You know, they go into schools and community organizations. I went through a training with them a couple of years ago, and you go off, you know, and you sit with someone and you tell each other stories about your life. And it's so simple, <laughs> but it's so revolutionary to tell a story, you know. Um, I think about all the, you know, the protests, particularly from, you know, the Make America Great Again folks, you know, um, and I look at the protests that they were, you know, doing earlier in the, you know, in the pandemic, you know, t- t- taking guns around and like disrupting, you know, all this stuff, complaining about how we need to open up. And on one hand, I can just shut down and say, you know, they're idiots, you know, which is what I think a lot of us, particularly maybe listening to this podcast, want to say, <laughs> you know, these people are idiots. But I think the harder path and the more liberating path and the more compassionate path is to say or to re- reflect or to wonder, oh, I wonder 
the pain that they're experiencing that drives them to be out in public during a pandemic, you know, wanting us to open up, you know, so they can get access to more resources. I want, I wonder what pain drives them to do that, you know, and sometimes I want to hear those stories, you know, sometimes I don't, and that's okay. You know, and it's the same with, you know, with black folks and marching and, you know, and, and demonstrating, right. It's like, as white folks, I think it's important for you all to say, I wonder what would drive Black folks out into the streets like this. You know, like, why why risk so much to do this? You know, like, why is that so important? You know, and that can open up a gateway of a lot of material. But that's going to, again, require us touching into the body and being with discomforts, you know, you know, and I, I love, you know, what Sabanay, you know, um, was shared, you know, Sabanay is also, you know, a, a dear friend of mine as well, who I don't talk to as much. I could use some of her wisdom sometimes, you know, <laughs> um, but, you know, it is important to point out that, like, I think people of color and Black people, um, Indigenous folks as well, um, are put into situations where we have to do emotional labor for white folks in order to survive spaces, in order to get the resources that we need, you know? Um, And that's just something that we have to do as a survival strategy, you know? Um, And there's a, we have to be, we have to be aware of that, you know? And, but for me in this moment, I have full agency, over the emotional labor that I'm doing for myself and the emotional labor that I'm offering you. You know, I am not being forced to do anything. I'm doing this also because I am really resourced right now, which means that, like, I'm really in my body. I'm taking care of myself. My heart is open. I'm not tired. I'm not resentful. I'm holding space for everything, you know? And that helps me to to offer consent in, in doing this. You know, um, and again, this is something that we have to ask folks before we have these conversations. Are you resourced enough to do this? You know, um, or do you feel as if you have to do this because you're afraid of, of being barred from getting resources that you really need to be well? You know, I mean, I'll just tell a quick story, too, Um you know, just and this is in Love and Rage. Is in my next book. I tell the story um, about kind of growing up. I grew up in the South in North Georgia, and um, still a lot of Klan activity, a lot of like white supremacist activity, especially now um, in these Trump years. But I was raised to speak to everyone, and so when I say speak to everyone, we had to acknowledge. Everyone, you know, um, I to acknowledge, you know, white people, black people, any people, you know, but we especially had to acknowledge white people, you know, because that was, you know, a generational thing that was passed from generation to generation because my ancestors knew that if they didn't acknowledge white people, that that could put their lives in danger. You know, we would be labeled as being, I, I don't know, rude, you know, and that kind of rudeness really costs Black people all over the country, but 
especially in the South, their lives. You know, that could that could begin a lynching for Black people if they didn't recognize white people. You know, and so that's been something that I've been really consciously working with, that conditioning that I have to acknowledge white people because they have a right to be here. And if I don't acknowledge them or do work for them or do emotional labor or anything for them, then I, my life will be at risk, you know. And now I don't think that, like, my life is at risk, but I do think that sometimes if I don't acknowledge white people in certain spaces, then there are sources that get restricted, you know. Um, I saw that in academia, too, in my time in graduate school, where it's like, oh, like, white whiteness has to be recognized, or as a Black student or as a Black academic, I actually, you know, um, I, there are resources that get withheld, from me because I'm seen as being rude. As we would say back home, I'm seen as being uppity. You know, I don't know my place. And that's the conditioning that a lot of white people are carrying around that like black people have a place and they don't have a right to do certain things. Like they don't have a right to be marching and demonstrating, you know, they don't have a right to that. That's, that's not their place. They should be, they should go back to their place, which is being, silent, erased, marginalized, because that helps me to remain comfortable about my situation and my positionality and whiteness, you know? And I think that's something that we have to, you know, why folks have to talk about, you know, maybe the the negative feelings and negative reaction towards Black people out on the streets is really about the ways in which it pushes up against the conditioning that, that, Black people are stepping outside of the place that they've been put and they need to go back, you know. Um, and, I, and I know, you know, lots of folks love to cite Dr. King. And, you know, Dr. King was vehemently peaceful, you know, in, in nonviolent protests up until the day that he died, you know, even though he was getting more radicalized. But, you know, again, you know, he was just like, yes, I will always be about nonviolence, but I'm also about Black people being heard and seen. And sometimes a riot is how we have to be seen and heard, you know? And he was so, so against this, this idea that like, you know, maybe we should just wait, you know, like maybe, you know, maybe Black people should just wait and stay in their place and things will get better over time. He's vehemently against that as well. You know, like this waiting was just another tool by white supremacist culture to keep Black people in place. You know, um, yeah, so I mean, that's a lot, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of bringing up. And so, again, like my question, you know, is how do you feel? You know, what are your feelings now? How are you feeling? Where are you at in your body? Oddly, actually, telling that story <laughs> mitigated my anxiety hmm. uh, markedly. I, I, the buzzing in my chest has wow. diminished, and or or maybe I'm just bypassing and and reverting to the intellectual and ignoring the body. Mm -hmm. But uh, one or one or both of those things is happening mm -hmm. to answer your question. Mm -hmm. And also, just I notice because I'm a trained interviewer, mm -hmm. and you're asking me to interrupt <laughs> those patterns. My habit is. I heard three questions I'd like to follow up on, but I'm trying not to revert to the in intellectual. Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot going on mm -hmm. in my mind. Mm 
It's interesting, you know, that the intellect is where is a safe place that we can retreat into to bypass the experience of the body. You know, you you described that before as being a part or a hallmark mm-hmm. of whiteness. Yep. Based on what? Why is that a white thing, or is it not just a human thing? Well, I think it. I think on a level, yes, it is human. Absolutely. But there is a way in which whiteness demands disembodiment. You know, and so the intellect is where one goes when one is disembodied. You know, so to return back to the body actually means that you have to like grapple with the level of trauma from conditioned whiteness. You know, and so when I, you know, when I've had these conversations with white folks, particularly intellectual white folks, you know, white folks with following and power, you know, and all of that, you know, the intellect is where is a really safe space. You know, the intellect is where I can go as well. But because of my practice, you know, my meditation mindfulness practice, I know that like my work is as much as possible is coming back to the body over and over again, knowing that like the intellect is something that's really important. And I need that, but it's not actually going to help me work through the trauma in my body, you know, and the woundedness in my body, you know. And the easiest way for, I would say, like white liberal folks is to move into the intellect, you know. That can be really quite harmful, particularly if you're in a conversation where someone's talking about feelings and and sensing, you know, and being in the body. And then the response is very, like, analytical you know you know this is what i think you know words like phrases like that this is what i think or i'm curious about that it's 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 not authentic to the conversation you're no longer communicating you know like if the if the conversation is about the felt experience of the impact of oppression and privilege then you have to stay within the language of of that felt experience you know, and so when someone leaves that level and goes into the intellect, you know, and not skillfully going into the intellect, because we can go into the intellect to get perspective on what the body is doing and how we're experiencing things, but we have to return back. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking. I'm not talking about going in and out to get a deeper awareness of it. I'm just. I'm talking about escaping the whole thing mm-hmm. and moving into the intellect and just staying there because yeah, that level of communication is just too much. I can't deal with it. You know. It feels like you're describing my conversational <laughs> style forever. <laughs> it's well, a, you know, I think it's a really good point. I think it's a really good point. I can I interview people. Mm-hmm. I mean, this again part of my training. And I'm not talking about this podcast yeah. per se. I'm talking about 30 years of being a journalist mm-hmm. all over the world interviewing mm-hmm. people in all sorts of horrifying situations. Mm-hmm. My survival mechanism is keep it in the intellects. I don't. I, it's not going to help me right now yeah. to feel everything you're feeling. This is the story I've told yeah, myself right. to the extent that I was even aware of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got to get this soundbite, and then I got to get it ready for tonight's news. <laughs> exactly. And if I'm overwhelmed with emotion, I can't function. Yeah. So I guess the whiteness you described, or the disembodiment you described, on steroids. Well, yeah, I think you bring up something really interesting is that 
we conflate professionalism and whiteness together. Hmm. You know, and I think that's been, I think the professionalism has been a really interesting cover for whiteness, you know, and that's, of course, been something that's been used against me. It's like, oh, like, you know, Rod, you should be more professional, you know, and I ha- I've had to, you know, use my intellect to interrogate that because that's important to go back into the intellect and to say, oh, what do they mean by that? <laughs> you know, what does it mean to be professional? You know, and I'm thinking about so many folks that I know, um, you know, you talk about hair in the Black community, like the ways in which our hair is policed in professional spaces, you know, and not, you know, thinking about some of the stories that we've been hearing over the past couple of years, particularly where students, you know, high school students, they go to school and they get suspended. (laughs) You know, Black students get suspended for having you know, dreadlocks or afros, right? And people say, well, it's not professional to the school environment. And that's frankly just a cover for whiteness. You know, your hair makes us feel really uncomfortable and it's not in line with our standards of what it means to assimilate within a system that we dominate. More of my conversation with Lama Rod after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. How would you feel if I asked you a question right now? I I, I don't want to deflect, but I do have a question I'd like to ask. No, go ahead. Uh, You mentioned the the title of your new book. Uh Um. I think it's an excellent title, and mm-hmm. it's it's very intriguing. Mm-hmm. And I see these two things coursing through this conversation, mm-hmm. one more than the other, frankly, mm-hmm. but I'd like to hear about both. Love and rage. Mm-hmm. I don't see that much rage. It feels yeah. to me like you're not in a disembodied way, right. but, you know, reasonably dispassionately pointing out mm-hmm. what you've experienced and what black people have experienced right. in this country. Right. but. I guess I project a rage onto it, not yeah. because you are who you are, but yeah. because if I was feeling that, I would feel rage. Right. Um, right. And then I see this incredible generosity mm-hmm. 
like when you described, can I look at these people who I might disagree with and think, what stories did they have that would motivate them to do this? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is they're doing that you disagree with. So I, I, I see this combination that you've aptly, you've paired these two human capacities in the title of your book. So I'd -hmm. just love to hear you say more about Mm -hmm. that because it seems deeply relevant to everything that's gone before it in our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that question. That's very full. (laughs) There's a a lot in that question that I want to address. Um, I think the first thing that I want to just touch on um, in your sharing is, you know, the statement of, you know, I'm I'm sorry not to use your exact words, but something along the lines of like I'm projecting my rage or how I think you should feel onto not you. how you should feel, but yeah. how I would feel how you, you right how yeah exactly you know and that's something that like I've really struggled with you know where I've been in conversations with white people. I'm not saying it's happening now, but I'm just saying in other conversations where it's been like you know there's a questioning actually of my blackness because I am not enraged Hmm. and performing rage and anger in the conversation. And so people Hmm. look at me and they say, and particularly from white people and some sometimes black people as well, is like, are you really struggling with these things? You know, are you really, are you really oppressed? Are you really like tied into racism? Is this really an experience? Because you don't sound like, and that's the, that's the statement. You don't sound like, (laughs) fill in the blank. (laughs) Like, you don't sound like you're a victim. You don't sound like you're, you know, experiencing racism. You don't sound like, you know, that is one of the most disruptive things you can tell someone, particularly someone who experiences victimhood and survivorhood from something really intense. It's like, well, you don't sound like you survived that. You don't sound like a victim of sexual assault. (laughs) You know? Um, and so I just want to point that out, you know, because so much of my experience is always being told how I should feel. Because then you've got the insult of the actually enduring whatever you endured and then the injury of being told that you're not performing it well enough. Exactly. And then your credibility is actually compromised because you don't fit the performativity that someone's actually expecting. You know, um, just for the record, I wasn't driving at that. Oh, no, 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 no. I I completely understand. Like, I didn't feel that at all. (laughs) But for for the listeners, I think this is something that we can learn from, you know, because I see I hear it all. I've I've done that before. Like when I'm talking, you know, having conversations or seeing something, you know, on in the media about someone talking about surviving something and a thought sometimes pops up and goes, wow, they don't seem like. Mm. you know, they actually experienced this thing, you know? But, you know, so now going back to the book, yes, Love and Rage. I started with the title of the book before I even had a book. So I just felt mm. like the title, the pairing of of these things really began to drive the content. Can I get the subtitle too? Because mm-hmm. it's, I Absolutely. think it's important. Love and Rage, The Path of Liberation Through Anger. Yes, Through Anger. Through, that's that's the key. Through I'm not bypassing the anger. I'm not going over it. I'm, I'm not going around it. I'm talking about going through because going through it is when we actually begin to understand what anger is and how to use anger 
you know, uh, and not for anger to have agency over us, but for us to have agency over the anger. That's the key. That's the that's the heart of the book, right? And so I've had to kind of put myself on the line here. Like I've I've used myself to really talk about how I've worked with anger. And this also is what the book about. The book is really just about me, <laughs> you know, and my relationship to anger and all the practices that I've used to work with anger, right? And so over the years, I've been, you know, roughly I've been practicing meditation for about 20 years. I started in mindfulness and then got into Buddhism. But um, I've done this incredible work to cultivate the spaciousness around my anger and my rage, around all my hurt, actually, right? You know, and so there's a sense of agency over what I experience. And when I say agency, again, I say there's a sense of space around what arises for me, you know, both mentally and physically, there's a space. When I am in conversations like this, I am speaking from the space, but the material that the space is holding is informing the conversation. So I know, like in this, I know that I'm frustrated and angry and enraged and traumatized and hurt and hopeless, like all of that, you know, but I'm holding it, you know. Love is important here because love is the, the, the strategy that I'm using to keep the space open. And love for me is an expression of acceptance. So I am accepting without judgment everything that's arising in my experience. And that acceptance helps me to disrupt the ways in which I may cling to things coming up, the ways in which I may fall into the narratives around the material that's coming up. And the less clinging that I can do, the more likely it is that the space around me, around the material, stays open. Or rather, it's more likely that I can remain aware of the spaciousness around the material that's coming up. You know, and that's how I'm able to move through the world. And that's taken almost 20 years of practice to do that. You know, some people may say, oh my God, 20 years. But you have to understand this is like, it was life and death for me. Being contracted around my emotions and the trauma and the heartbreak felt like death to me. You know, I'm talking about being in my late teens and my 20s. It was just so, so, so much suffering, you know. And so when I started this path of meditation, yeah, it was uh, it was incredibly difficult to do this. It was incredibly difficult to sit and watch my anger, you know, because I didn't really believe that I had agency over any emotion, especially anger, you know. But the more you sit, the more you watch, the more you begin to understand that, like, you know, thoughts and emotions—they're just—they're just things. There's these—they're they're experiences passing through the mind, passing through the body. You know, they're like clouds passing through the sky. You know, they're like waves, like rising from the ocean. You know, the the waves don't overcome the ocean. <laughs> That's impossible, right? The clouds can't overcome the sky. Even though it's overcast, the sky is still, you know, there and spacious and boundless, and the clouds are just a temporary experience, you know? So that's how I relate to the material in my mind. This is, this is what gives rise to the relationship of love and rage, you know? It might be useful to point out that 
as far as I know, the work that you just described, which is pretty incredible, you can't do this work if you're disconnected from your body. Yes. Yes. And I want to, you know, just, you know, point out something too, which is that, yeah, all of our bodies have very different narratives, you know, which simply means that, like, we all have different levels of trauma, you know, in our bodies. And this kind of work of bringing attention back to the body can be quite dangerous for many of us. And so I can definitely find myself in a line of of teaching where I'm overemphasizing the importance of the body and maybe making statements that say, you know, you can't possibly be well if you can't pay attention to the sensations of the body. You know, and I, I don't want to say that, you know, because it is it will be really difficult for many of us to do that. But what I do want to say is that we have to at least acknowledge the body and the practice. You know, I may not be able to get into sensations, but I need to at least have a practice that says, you know what, I have a body. And that's maybe all that I can do <laughs> in the practice. And that's and that's enough. And I want us to to go to where we're at, or rather go to what's appropriate for us in the practice and work that space, you know? So if you have to maintain some space outside of the body because of trauma, that's the space you're going to have to work then. And you can experience a lot of benefit from that. Other people can go deep into the body, you know, because the experiences of trauma, you know, may be lesser, you know, or not existent, you know, and that's wonderful too, you know, so we have to all do the practice where we're at, you know, and I think sometimes as meditation teachers, as, you know, particularly mindfulness instructors, which a lot of folks are listening in, who do identify as mindfulness folks, you know, and also yoga folks, you know, I'm a yoga teacher as well. Like, I think sometimes we have to be really careful about teaching from where we're at, so if we're someone who has a really great relationship with the body, we just have to be very careful about saying and making, you know, statements about, okay, if you're not where I'm at, then you're not doing the practice right or you're wrong. And I, so I don't want to say that. I want to say that whatever, wherever is appropriate for you to practice, that's right for you. That's appropriate for you. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, in love and rage, it's the same thing. It's like, Yes, I've done this incredible work with anger and rage and disappointment and heartbreak, but I want you to start where you're at. And the book has a lot of practices <laughs> to help you start where you're at. You know, and this is the kind of book that I wanted to write. I just I didn't want to just talk about anger. Right? I wanted to give you practices to work with anger. You know, in the book and you just pick the practice that's appropriate for where you're at and that's it. And you work it. You know, I experience, you know, I experience an incredible amount of spaciousness like this. I'm not being arrogant. I'm just pointing out something that's really my experience. It's like, yeah, I have a lot of freedom, you know, because I've done this incredible amount of work, not just in mindfulness and meditation and Buddhism, but in different, you know, um, traditions and lineages, you know, spiritual lineages and so forth. And all that work comes together so I can be in this time, in this place, in this body you know, to be in a pandemic, to be in an uprising, to be in an economic collapse and be in political turmoil and just actually be able to be okay. You know, okay is such a strong place for me. You know, it's not about being great. It's not about being good. 
are super fantastic or any of that. It's about being okay. And okay is about being being in a place that I can like manage what comes up for me. And that's all. That's all I'm trying to do. I think that's all we should be doing is having the practice to manage what comes up for us. You know, to be with it in a way that makes sense for us, in a way that helps us to experience safety and choice. And that's it. That's all I want in the practice for everyone. And whatever comes from being okay, that's great. If you're happy, if you're joyful, if you're, you know, anything that comes from that is wonderful. You know, absolutely. But just being okay is so, it's, I've busted my ass to be okay. And I'm so grateful for it. <laughs> I've busted my ass to be okay. It's a pretty good title for a book, too. <laughs> like, don't steal that. That's mine. <laughs> <laughs> it's public. I, it's if, public. If, I, it, if I steal it, everybody's going to know I stole it. So, <laughs> uh, Let me ask you uh, one last question or just have one last dialogue around something. I'm sensitive to your time, but – and I – I'm asking this from a position of whiteness, of being white. Mm. I think for me, mm -hmm. it is possible that we will go through this period of time as we've gone through other periods where race becomes salient in the popular consciousness. Mm -hmm. And I will lean in and engage mm -hmm. and then... Uh, some other story will come along and yeah. capture our attention, yeah. and I will have the luxury mm -hmm. of disengaging because right. I'm not walking around with black skin and therefore yeah. don't have to be thinking about it all the time. Right. I worry about that. I don't know. I, I, I just wonder if any of that, what any of that provokes for you mm -hmm. and any, any thoughts you would have on mm -hmm. how to stay engaged. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and for me, I'm just used to that. That's not really like a new thing for me, that we have a short attention span, particularly if you're someone who doesn't necessarily have the same experiences of an, as another group. And of course, you know, of course we can get distracted and start thinking about other things that are much more pertinent for us, right? I think that one of the things that we can do is, again, I believe in relationships, and I think relationships are the, the key to having an equitable society and culture in the long run. And so we have to stay in relationship to Black people, you know? Like, I stay in relationship to my immigrant friends because I want to stay connected to issues that immigrants are experiencing, in this country. And so with white folks, you have to stay in relationship. You have to be in the lives of black folks, you know, and that's another particularity of whiteness in this country is that like there are many white people who will never have a significant relationship mm -hmm. with someone of any other race, you know, not just black, but like any other race. This is a way in which you can cocoon yourself or isolate yourself within white spaces, which is a privilege that people of color do not have. You know, and, and people can say, oh, you know, but like there are, you know, these black neighborhoods or Jewish neighborhoods that people can isolate in, you know, but you still have to, you're still surviving within a dominant culture. 
whom you rely on for resources. You know, so even then we have to go outside of our communities into other spaces where we're not reflected in. But again, cultivating relationships with people who are different than you. You know, there are coworkers that many of us have. There are, you know, neighbors, you know, whatever it may be. And just like learning how to have conversations, to check in, like, how are you doing? It's, again, such an important starter. And then you, you know, like you, even if the new cycle changes, you know that like your friends are still struggling with this issue and you stay connected. And the more you stay connected, the more you're going to develop care, love, compassion for, for your friends. And you start having this personal emotional connection, not just to them, to, but to what they're struggling with, you know? And I think another thing we have to do is, is educate ourselves. We have to read, <laughs> you know, we have to, you know, particularly in America, you know, we have to, we have to understand how America was founded and how America perpetuates itself to really to understand what's happening now. You know, nothing that we're experiencing from politics to the demonstrations to the economics to the pandemic, nothing is random. You know, nothing just, there's very little that just happens. There are systems in place. There are, there are things that have already been going on for centuries that have made it possible for these things to, for these things to be happening right now. And we have to study that. You know, a lot of it is based on race, you know. Um, we say that, like, oh, race is, you know, race was over when Obama got elected, you know. And that was that, was that line, oh, we're in a post-racial America now. If we're in a post-racial America now, we wouldn't be experiencing this at all. We wouldn't be experiencing Donald Trump, especially if this was a post-racial America. So we have to read and understand and study you know, there are many great people who have done this intellectual work for us, this intellectual academic work to understand this. There's all this great work within contemplative literature right now, you know, and philosophical literature as well, where people have done this work for us to, to understand how this is feeling for us in our bodies as well and how to really undo these systems. So we have to do all of that. And lastly, I would just say that we just have to know that we have this ability to bypass. We have this ability to skip around and not to stay focused. And we have to intentionally learn how to bring our minds, our awareness back. Just in our basic meditation practice, right? We're using an anchor. It's about bringing the attention back to the anchor over and over and over again. In the same way, we bring our attention back to the social reality of wherever we're living, you know, be it in America or other countries, right? Bring our attention back over and over again. You know, and again, if you're going to do that, you're going to actually, at the same time, be decentering comforts. You know, and that's part of the price of the ticket is actually coming back into embracing discomfort as this place from which realization and awareness emerges from about relationships and how we're living together as a society. Would you argue there's to an individual white person. Mm -hmm. Now, there is no question in my mind, at least, that embracing the discomfort of having these conversations, keeping it alive in your own mind, mm -hmm. whether it's top of the news cycle mm -hmm. or not, would be good for the world. Yeah. But 
What about for an individual person? Because I have this inchoate <laughs> sense, this nebulous but hard to articulate sense that actually doing this work, engaging in this way, no matter how uncomfortable it is, mm-hmm. actually feels better than living in denial. But I can't quite <laughs> put it into words that it feels like there's an upside to me to embracing this discomfort yeah. um, from a moment to moment life perspective. But does any of that make any sense to you? Well, absolutely. I think what you're trying to articulate is that this work helps us to be freer. You know, and that's something that's hard to articulate if you actually have never had this experience of really living in the truth of reality. You know, but that freedom, that 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 freedom for me, it's about authenticity. It's about actually fully acknowledging what's happening in me and around me. And that and that's emotional labor that we're doing. It's like touching into that helps us to release all of these hidden repressed things within our experience. And you just feel better. Yeah, and at the same time, yes, it's uncomfortable, but that discomfort is held by the space that begins to open up around this tension, this repression being released, you know? But you have to believe in that kind of freedom through discomforts, you know? Which is, again, this is what Love and Rage is about. It's like, let's go into the discomfort in order to get free, which sounds really, like, you know, paradoxical, you know? But uh, you have to get more uncomfortable to get free? Absolutely, (laughs) because we have to hurt more to heal, you know, you have to you have to rip the the scab off, you know, for that wound to get healed, you know, or whatever it may be. I'm not a doctor, but like you have to you have to experience the pain in order to understand what the pain is. And in our case, we have to experience pain in order to let the pain go. You gotta bust your ass to be okay. Yeah, exactly, right? Exactly. You can't let go of something you haven't experienced. <laughs> You know, so experience, and then you have agency over it. Then in that agency, you're like, okay, I don't need this. And then you let it go, and then all of a sudden, you start interacting and being with people in such a different way. Like, you begin to express liberation within a conversation, within an interaction, because you know, like, you've experienced your discomfort and your pain, and you know what causes discomfort and pain within other folks. And you know, like, oh, I'm not going to say that, (laughs) you know? I'm not going to make this assumption. I'm not going to skip into my intellect. I'm not. Gonna, I'm going to stay in my body because this is how I'm going to reduce harm for myself and for the person that I'm with in this moment. Well, thank you for busting your ass to be okay, and then thank you for coming on and uh, and doing the the labor to talk about what's going on for you and to. Uh, make it okay for me to talk about what's going on for me. Um, Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Again, big thanks to Lama Rod. That was uh, meaningful for me and I hope, I hope for you as well. Again, check out his book, Love and Rage comes out soon. It's available for pre-order right now. As always, big thanks to the team that works incredibly hard to put this show together on a on a quite a quite a cadence now. Samuel Johns is our lead producer. Our sound designers are Matt Boynton and Anya Shashik from Ultraviolet Audio. Maria Wortel is our production coordinator. We get a ton of incredibly valuable input from TPH colleagues like uh, Jen Poyant, Nate Toby, and Ben Rubin. And of course, 
A big thank you to my friends from ABC News, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohen. We're going to be back on Friday with a bonus episode and then on Monday, an episode all about uh, white people talking to white people about whiteness, which is uh, an important thing to do. So we're going to try to model that and we'll see you soon with much more content. Thanks for listening. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost, but now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.